Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers in the room, all the men who have influenced and discipled other young men in the room as well. We are walking through Romans, which is written by someone who didn't have his own kids himself, didn't have biological children. He makes that very clear in his letters. But also what's clear is that he invested in many different men throughout his lifetime, investing in them, empowering them, believing in them. When you read how many different places in his letters he talks up Timothy, who he writes two letters to later in life, you see the deep affection and longing and belief he has in that young minister that he brought up himself. So even if you don't have biological children yourself, or even if you do, but they're not here, older men of the church, the younger men need you. There has been at least five different men I can think of in my life besides my own wonderful biological father that have invested in me, believed in me, spent time with me um, from my young 20s into wherever I am now. We are looking at Romans chapter 7. We've been walking through Romans this summer, and last week my friend Ken was here, preached on Romans 6, the earlier portion of Romans 6, and talked about um, God's grace talked about sin in our lives. We're going to be leaning a little more into that. If I could give you an encouraging title for this morning's sermon on Romans 7, it would be, What a Wretched Humanity, What a Fortunate Jesus. I almost thought about titling it, What a Wretched Humanity, What a Fortunate Humanity, because that's really where Paul gets by the end of the chapter, but I thought that was a little confusing. What a fortunate Jesus we have. A few overviews as we through this, and we're about halfway through the gospel, uh, the letter to the Romans, and that is Romans. Two things to take away: the first that is obvious is that Romans is a heavy letter about salvation. It is actually widely considered for two thousand years now one of the most influential writings for all of Western society as we understand. Grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. We are saved by faith in Jesus who by his grace saves us by a work that he does from our own sin and death. Secondly, is that it also is, and less well known, a letter written to real people with real problems living in a real world. It's not written as a theological tome or treatise on substitutionary atonement. It was written to help solve Problems and divisions in a local church body in the city of Rome. Five small house churches that were divided over race and theology, and they loved Jesus but had some disagreements, so they were separated. And Paul writes this letter to bring them back together. He so happens to use some of the greatest theological language ever written to do so, but his goal was to bring a divided church back into unity. And he says, you do it through Christ. You do it by his salvation. You do it through the works he has done. As we look at chapter seven, we're going to talk about sin and we're going to talk about grace, but we're largely going to talk about sin and the law. Let's dive in this morning. Romans chapter seven. We'll begin with verses one through three. Paul writes, now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery 
when she remarries. Now, if you're reading that and are a little confused why Paul's talking about marriage, you can join the club. Reading through a few commentaries and uh, theological interpretations of this, one thing became very clear. What commentary said is, while we believe that this is Scripture, this is the inspired Word of God, the Holy Spirit working through Paul to teach us about Christ and to stand with authority, almost every commentary said also, this is not Paul's best illustration. It's not the best one he's ever used. And you hear it, I can shorten it for you. What Paul's kind of saying is, when you're married, if you want to marry someone else, you can't. But if your spouse dies, you can marry that other person. And when you hear it read out that way, it's a strange illustration. As someone who preaches and has a recorded catalog of my illustrations, some good, some not so good, it is reassuring to read Paul's writings, and as great and as powerful as Paul was, to read this illustration be like, well, maybe that one's a little wonky. Um, it's better if my spouse is dead because then I can remarry. I don't know if he's illustrating exactly what he means to, but what he is saying is this. He's saying there are commitments we make to in life. We're held to them. Jon Snow on the wall. But if you die, the commitment is broken. What he's saying is we are committed into the law, and the law is corrupted by sin, and the law ends up being work against us rather than benefiting us. And you may say, well, we're bound to it, and what can I do with that? And he says, but if you die in Christ, you die to the law and are free to live now in Christ. You may be walking through this and saying, why are we back at the law again? Welcome to Romans, reading through this letter to the church. We're back at the law. Ken last week preached in Romans 6, and he talked about Christian living and what it means to now live as followers of Jesus, some of the impact. And now we're building towards the law. And what could mistakenly be interpreted is, as we're walking into now living as a Christian, the law's back, and now it's, okay, well, I need the law then. Christ freed me so that I can live according to the law, so that I can better serve the law, so that I can follow all of the rules. We have seen the church maybe misemphasize these things, right? As we've argued to try and put the Ten Commandments back into schools, they need to be everywhere. We need the Ten Commandments. That's why the world is falling apart. Nobody follows the Ten Commandments anymore. They're not written down. They're not laws that everyone has to follow. We don't have blue laws anymore. No one respects these things. They're not following the rules the way they should. Sometimes you can hear that language too as people say they yearn for 1950s America. And I usually say, well, certain types of people yearn for 1950s America. Normally people that look like me yearn for that. Others might not be as beneficiary of moving backwards in time. You see, people followed the rules then. They followed the laws then. I think if you look, it's not actually true but what Paul is saying is not to come back to the law and come back to following the rules. Let's look at Paul's understanding of the law that he's writing to Jewish and Gentile Christians in the city of Rome. What does he say about the law so far? In Romans 3.21, he says the law points to the gospel. The law is a finger pointing forward to the gospel of Christ Jesus. It's pointing us to the salvation we will receive in him. It's a promise. It's looking forward. We see in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, the law reveals man's sin. 
The law reveals how wicked and fallen man is. When we look at the law and then we look at ourselves, we're like, well, yeah, no, I'm not doing about half of those. And I'm, the ones I am, I'm not doing very well. Or we see the law and we see how we weaponize it against each other and then look back again and be like, woof, we are really messing things up. The law exists to show how broken humanity is. And then finally, he says in Romans chapter 6, just one chapter earlier, he says that Christians are no longer under the law. We're not under the law. We're not held to the law. We're not under its authority because Christ Jesus has not destroyed the law. He has fulfilled it. He didn't abandon it. He completed it. He lived out the law perfectly in his life, graciously, lovingly, righteously. He was without sin. He nailed the law literally and figuratively onto the cross and put it to death. He completed it. And then he gave us a new covenant by his blood. Let's see how Paul continues this because now he's gonna have more to say about the law. Romans chapter seven in verse four. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Romans 7, verse 6, highlighted there is maybe the crux and the center point of this chapter. We have died and are no longer captive to the power of the law. For the Roman Jewish Christian. We said there are two communities in the church of Rome Paul's writing to. Jewish Christians, the ones who are without power because they're a minority group. He calls them the weak. Or the Gentile Christians, they have, there's more of them, so they have more authority. He calls them the strong, simply based on how many of them there are. To Jewish Christians, Paul is saying, you have known yourselves as a covenant family defined by the law. I am Jewish because I follow the law. I am Jewish because I have been circumcised. I am Jewish because my family practices a certain set of rituals and behaviors and laws, and they are obedient to it. That is what defines us as being Jewish. He says, no, now in Christ, you are defined as a covenant family by Christ Jesus the Messiah. You're not defined anymore by your behaviors, the laws, and the rituals. You are defined by a person. And in that person, you have received freedom. And in that person, you now live out your identity. He says, you are a covenant family because you sing songs about Jesus. You are a covenant family because you eat the bread and drink the cup of Jesus. You are a covenant family because you are saved by him and you live in him and for him. Not defined by obedience, but defined by faith. Not proven by activity, but by what has already been done not dependent on me, but given and dependent on Christ, not historically focused, but future-oriented, not binding and controlling, but freeing and empowering, not a system of laws, but the character of a person. As Paul says it to the church in Galatia, for when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. 
So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. Those of us who call on the name of Jesus, those of us brought into the kingdom and into the community of Christ through confession and baptism, we are defined by the crucified and risen Messiah, Christ Jesus. We have died to the law. We live in Christ. So let's revisit Paul's weird illustration of marriage. As humans, Paul says in Romans 5, we are born into the sin nature. We are born into what he calls the nature of Adam. The, we, we have the identity of Adam, the first human or humanity itself. And we have that identity in us, which is the desire to sin, to be unable to follow the law. We have that nature in us. And he says the law is a covenant made for life to try and overcome that sin nature. The law is a means God gave us to try and protect from that nature. If you follow these, if you remind each other, if you do these, you might overcome that nature. And then Jesus is the only one who does follow the law perfectly, and then it, the law puts him to death. In following Jesus, we put sin and law, Adam, his humanity, the law, its condemnation to death, and then we are resurrected into the covenant with Messiah Jesus. This is what Paul says in other letters when he talks about the bridegroom and the bride being the church. Jesus, the groom, the church, the bride. He says, it's as if we were married to sin. We were bound to it. We have died to that covenant we have been reborn into a new marriage with Christ Jesus, who is now our partner, who gives and loves and graciously serves us. Corinthians 11, he says this. Ephesians 5, he says this. 2 Corinthians. And perhaps the deepest reason for his writing of Romans 7 is that since God does through the Spirit what the law could not, which is bring life into humanity, set us free from sin, it is vital that in Romans 7, we see exactly what the law was trying to do and why it was bound to fail. Let's see his largest argument of this in Romans 7, verses 7 through 13. Well then, Paul says, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and the commands are holy and right and good. Oh, sorry. Took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation. 
to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. Those of you that have raised children, the fathers in the room, mothers have also raised them, but it's Father's Day, so I'm pointing them out. When a child gets around two or three, you don't have to teach them certain things about sin and selfishness and violence. They internally know those things. They internally practice those things. But the moment you tell your young child, we don't, we don't take other people's toys, there's also a moment in that child where there's some sort of rebellious spirit in them rises up that now even more so wants to do that. You see the battle. They're testing their boundaries. They're testing the limits. They're testing you to see if you're actually going to hold them accountable to that. This is somewhat similar to what Paul's saying. He's saying, it didn't cause me to be a sinful person, but when the law was given to me, there's a part of me that now is like, ooh, now I know what it is. Now, now I'm trying to exploit it. I'm trying to find the ways to take advantage. Sin takes anything humans create, anything humans exist in, and it tilts it towards destruction. St. Augustine in the fourth century calls this in Latin, incurvatus me. I take anything and curve it back to be about me. I take anything that exists in the world and I make it sinful and broken. I'll give you two examples from the early 20th century. The Wright brothers down there in the Carolinas, drinking their sweet tea and inventing flight. They create the first airplane in 1903, the very first flight ever happens, right? 1914, 11 years later, World War I breaks out in Europe, and in just 11 years, the miracle of flight is weaponized to be the best device to go down a trench and destroy and murder humans. 11 years. We didn't even know flight was possible, and in just a decade, we discover a way to use it to kill as many people as possible. 1937. Nuclear fission is discovered. If I break two cells apart of a particular type of cell, it creates a catastrophic chain of explosions. And in just eight years, we use it to create a bomb to destroy two massive cities in Japan. We take things that are neutral, could be good. Nuclear power to produce electricity is great. We should be doing more of it. But when we take it and weaponize it is the very nature of humanity. We take what is good, we take what is neutral, and we use it for evil, incurvatus me. Paul gets the law off the hook here. He says, it's not the law's fault. The law is not bad. The law is not evil. The law was good and right. It was to guide us towards what it is to live how God made us. But sin took law and used it to condemn us. It's not the law's fault. It's a tool. Evenly a divine given tool can be used for evil by sin. A popular show in the last few months, Netflix came out with a show called Beef. I don't necessarily recommend it because not all of it, I think, is Christ-honoring. Uh, but the nature of the show is sin nature in humanity. Throughout the show and its nine-episode run, 
what you see is two people who in their brokenness point their anger at each other and then episode after episode have an opportunity to abandon it and live a good, enjoyable, loving life. And in each episode, they take what is good and they turn it back towards revenge and spiral down into insanity and chaos. It's painful to watch as you see, oh, you can just make that one decision. You can avoid it. Now you have your own small business and you're gonna, no, you're gonna leverage the, oh, oh, you're in church now and now you're gonna be able to, oh, and then you take it. New business relationships, church community, property for their parents' home, friends and family, they turn it towards revenge and destruction. This is what Paul says sin does. It takes what is good and it turns it towards evil. And the point is that the pattern of human brokenness, Paul calls it sin. It's naturally in all of us. And that sin uses anything man-made and turns it for evil. The law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. The law promised life, Leviticus 18.5. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord. We read the Old Testament, we read Leviticus, we read Exodus laws, and we think now about the condemnation that comes from it, the rules and the regulations, the blood and the violence. But God said, this is actually how you find life if you are obedient to the call I've given you. Many of us in the 21st century don't often enough stop to ponder and meditate on the danger and weight of the sin in our lives. I know I don't. I don't emphasize it in my preaching. I'd rather talk about Jesus. But what Paul says is we can't see the beauty of Jesus until we understand and hold the weight of our sin and depravity. Otherwise, Jesus is a nice guy who walks along in my niceness, not a savior that saves me from my brokenness and sin. Let's see it continue on. Romans chapter seven, verse 14. This is the famous Pauline passage here. It also kind of is a tongue twister. So I've already messed up once reading Romans seven today, so I am not confident in myself moving forward. So the trouble is not with the law, Paul says, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. How many parents out there know that excuse probably wouldn't hold up at home? It wasn't me. It was the sin living in me that did it. And you're like, I know, honey. That's okay. Let's all have ice cream. Very good argument. Oh, that's Pauline. Oh, that's Romans 7. Very good. Yes, I agree with you. If, you, if your child quotes you from Romans 7, though, give him a break. Um, what Paul is talking about here, this passage is maybe the most famous one in Romans 7. And... There's many ways to interpret it, but one of the things to know is that Roman is written into a context of Roman philosophy. 
There's not a lot of Roman philosophers. That was more of a Greek thing. Romans were about efficiency and engineering and war tactics, but they did have one branch of philosophy called Stoicism, Roman Stoicism. It's recognizing what is good and what is bad. It is suppressing your emotions and doing the logical good right thing. This argument Paul's talking about is a Stoic argument. Is that knowing what is good and doing what is good are two different things. I can know what is good and still fail to do it. Stoicism would say, you're not trying hard enough. You're not suppressing your emotions enough. That's not Paul's conclusion. In fact, Seneca the Younger famously says something similar. He says, for what is right is not always the same as what is expedient. And what is expedient may not always be right. The things that we do that are easy, not always the right things. And we may know the right thing, but because we're lazy or because we're short-sighted or just because we're selfish, we may not do it. I'll give you an example that will ring around in your head. Um, in the last 15 years, there's been one sociological study about kindness and niceness. And they said in the Western world, one of the clearest examples of whether you are a kind person or not is if you put your grocery store cart back. That's the one indicating variable because it only annoys you. It only makes your life worse to have to put the cart back. No one ever knows that you're the one that did it. So you get absolutely no reward out of it and it only benefits other people. So think about that next time you're at the grocery store and whether you're a kind person or not. That's just for your own self to think about sin in your life. It is a weakness of will is what Paul's talking about. It's what the Stoics say. It's a weakness of will. My will's not strong enough. I, I, I know it, but I can't do it. And so we then revert back to exactly what Paul's trying to tell us not to do. So I gotta get stronger. I gotta try harder. If I'm English, I gotta have that stiff upper lip, right? I gotta grip my teeth and I just gotta do it. I gotta grab my bootstraps. I gotta pull them up. I gotta work harder at it. That's what a stoic would tell you. What Paul says is, you can't because it's not even you that's failing. It is an external force of sin introduced into this world by a deceiver that is corrupting everything. And if anything in the Old Testament has taught us is the organization, the will, the beauty of a leader like David, the inspiration and humility of a leader like Moses is not enough to conquer the weakness that is inside of you. It's not, and you will not, and you cannot. You can't be strong enough is what Paul argues. Now, people have debated theologically a long time a specific nature about this illustration. What's Paul saying? What's the context? Now, there's three interpretations. Is Paul referring to, in this passage, himself pre-Christ? Is this what he was like before he had Jesus? Is that what he's saying to us? This is what it was like. I couldn't do the right things. I wanted to do them and I couldn't do them. But now that I have Christ, I do and I am. Or is the interpretation that he's talking about himself now, an old man who's planted a bunch of churches, been a Christian for 40 years, served Jesus, has all these amazing experiences, and is still saying, I still can't quite get it right. I still can't do it. I still can't get there. Or... Is it a third argument that Paul's using a rhetorical device of the I being we? He's giving an illustration of what it means to be human for all of us. This is what it's like as humans. 
the I being we, or if you're pretentious or working on a master's paper, you use one. One might argue Paul's kind of maybe doing that. We all are like this. This is a shared universal experience. I lean more towards the third interpretation, although I leave open to to either of the other two, but I think the third illustrates the larger trend of what Paul's arguing here in Romans 7, is that in all of us is this sin nature placed that makes us unable to live according to God's will and way and law. No matter how hard God's people struggled to obey his law, they ended up just like the rest of the world. And honestly, even for the church of Christ Jesus, if you've studied history at all, church history at all, even those of us who know Jesus, even those of us with the Holy Spirit living in us, oftentimes fail to live up to the standard that Christ Jesus has set for us. We have sexual abuse scandals and churches bury them and move pastors or priests around. We have fallen on the wrong side of history sometimes when it comes to race and when it comes to slavery and when it comes to wars around the world. We have fallen on the wrong sides even with the spirit living in us. It can feel really resonating when Paul says, woe is me, a miserable human being. Let's see Paul's answer. His final verses, beautiful building passages, beginning in verse 18. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. He's coming back to this passage again. It's a Pauline tongue twister. It's Paul and sort of Dr. Seuss. The second cat in the hat book, the cat in the hat returns, I think is particularly apt. He takes a bath. He creates a ring of ink in the bath. Then he takes the mother's dress to get rid of the ink that's there. Then the mother's dress is ruined. So he slaps it against the wall. Now the wall is ruined. He cleans the wall with shoes. Now the shoes are ruined. He rubs the shoes against the carpet. Now the, And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on in the way that Paul would say, oh, Dr. Seuss, you're really getting it because you got these tongue twister language going on. And what you're pointing to is the sin, no matter what we try to use to clean it, is just becoming corrupted by the sin that we use to try to clean the last thing. We can't get rid of it. Thank you, cat. The real culprit is sin. In a sense, Paul takes the blame off the law. In a sense, he takes the blame off of humanity to a degree. That we're living in a fallen world, tricked by a foreign entity, by a deceiver who worked against God's great plan, against God's great creation of humanity itself. We fail to live the life God wants us to live. We fail to, as the Old Testament writers would say, image him. We fail for others to see God in us when we live. Even with all the guardrails, the rules, the knowledge, the wisdom, we still fail. As Paul writes in Galatians 3.22, but the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. What's the answer that Paul gives? It's Jesus. 
What's the power to battle sin? It's Jesus. What's the call to live a holy life? It's Jesus. But the process, according to Paul, is a battle, but the battle is straightforward. He says it's believing in the work of salvation on the cross, believing that it is done, believing that the judgment that comes from sin is done and over, believing that the consequences of death by sin are paid for and over, and that even when we close our eyes on this earth and that we deserve eternal death because of our fallen nature, we will not receive it. We will receive a gift of resurrected life instead by Christ Jesus. It's believing that if I invite Jesus into my life, there's a continual process of his renewal by his spirit in me, in prayer, in the study of scripture, in obedience of his will in community. And finally, verses 21 through 25, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. He's on it again. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that's at war with my mind. That's the power of sin. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God that the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. To the Roman church, he's telling them, there is division among you and you're trying to figure it out, maybe make more rules, maybe be more obedient. And the Gentiles are saying, be less obedient, be more free. Let's just party. It's going to be fine. And Paul's saying, no, it's not either. It's not more rules. It's not no rules. It is grace. It's the grace that comes from what Christ Jesus has given us already. Thank God, he says, that God has made a way for reconciliation in Jesus. For the Roman church, your reconciliation in your five separated churches is Jesus. You all love Jesus. You all know Jesus. You all are disqualified to be teaching each other about any of this theology. You are qualified for death. But Christ Jesus has given you the grace of eternal life. So stop judging each other by your own standards and stop trying to make each other live by your standards and instead share Jesus among you. Come to an altar and pray for one another that you would receive the fullness of Jesus by his spirit. Go to each other in small groups and lift each other up in prayer and walk through the scriptures together about how beautiful Jesus is and the depth of lostness in humanity and how badly we need his presence. He's reminding a divided congregation to come together through shared worship of Jesus. Romans is often read as a very individualistic book my personal Lord and Savior. I confess Jesus. 
Paul's writing a communal letter to a communal people. We confess Jesus. We come to Jesus. It's a good illustration for us, for many of us as Americans, that tomorrow is Juneteenth, and we're reminded of the communal sins of our own nation, of our own culture, and those have effects still today. And the answer is still Jesus. The answer is still grace and mercy and forgiveness and justice to come alongside others and to say, yeah, I share your pain. Yeah, I recognize this. We own this and we confess this and we bring it to Jesus and we walk forward together. But the answer is also individual that I need Jesus. I need his salvation. I need his forgiveness and mercy. I want to close with three things for us to pray through. The first is that we recognize and own our ongoing struggle with sin. To recognize that on this side of the resurrection, sin is still present. It's an already not yet. We'll get there, but there is sin still in this world. And we begin with ourselves, I begin by owning my sin. As the psalmist tells me to invite the Holy Spirit to search me and draw out where I am sinful, where I am accountable, where I am broken and in need of transformation in Christ Jesus. Second, to embrace the love of God's law. For us, we can say embrace the love of God's word. As Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, those who hear my teaching and build their life upon my teaching are like people building a house upon a rock. Because we are freed from the law, it doesn't mean we don't learn wisdom from God's instruction, particularly Jesus in the Gospels, teaching us about God's ways and love and grace and mercy. And that as we study Jesus, my sins become all the more apparent as I watch him on the cross, forgive those putting him there, I think about all the things I'm holding unforgiveness for and saying, do I really have a right to be holding these? Boy, what a miserable person I am and what I'm holding over others. As I see Christ Jesus for 40 days in the desert, deny his own physical needs, and I myself am hungry and lustful and wanting to fill all of myself, I am reminded again of what a miserable, sinful person I am. But then third is to rely on Jesus for liberation. That as the law shows me how sinful I am, I don't respond in misery. Well, I'm a sinful, terrible person, I better order that whole pizza tonight by myself and I'm just gonna drown in it. I'm gonna binge this whole show, I'm giving up. And we don't button down to the others. I'm just gonna self-flagellate. I'm gonna beat myself into submission. I'm gonna make sure I'm, I'm a holy person. I'm gonna grit it in. Those are not the solutions Paul tells us. What he says is the solution is just rely on the liberation of Christ Jesus. Rely on the fact that the work is already done. He put it to death on the cross. He conquered it in the resurrection. And that to find freedom is to find Jesus. 
And if I want to overcome this area of sin in my life, and you may have an area in your life, even this morning, that's even come to your mind that you've just already settled. I'm never going to beat this. This is a part of me. I give up on this. I want to tell you to turn your eyes back to Jesus, who has never given up on the fact that he wants a holy and righteous and perfect and loving life for you. And that he says, it's not your burden to carry, it's my burden to carry. And if you're struggling with it, just hand it over to me. I've been a minister now for 15 years. I've been a Christian for, I don't know, 28. And I know that I have to continually keep turning it back over to him. I have to turn it over to Jesus each day. It didn't happen one time when I was seven years old. It happens every morning when I decide again in prayer to turn my life over to him and to confess my sin to him and to sit in his presence again and be reminded of his beauty and his grace. Own your sin and your struggle with it. Embrace God's law and rule as it points out your sin, but discover that the solution is to continually return back to Jesus. If you'll stand with me, if you can, this morning as we close. If you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I wanna give you a chance this morning just to make that confession of faith, to take that first step, know Jesus, confess sin, confess your need of a savior. For those of us that call ourselves Christians, we can use this as a moment ourselves of recommitment, of galvanization of that. Pray it with me. Jesus, I believe that you are Savior, you are Lord, you are friend. I believe, Jesus, that you were fully God and fully man. You came into this earth and you lived a perfect and righteous life. You fulfilled every requirement of the law. You loved well. You gave completely. And then you took my sin and shame. You took all of my judgment onto your shoulders on the cross and you died in my place. On the third day, you rose from the grave conquering sin and death. And now you give to me all of your righteousness, all of your reward, all of your forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus, I confess you as Savior and Lord. You gave your life for me. May I give my life to know you. Pray this in the name of Jesus. As the team leads us in one final song, I'll invite our elders up on my right and my left. If you want to receive prayer this morning, we would love to just lay a hand on you, pray with you this morning, pray a blessing with you. If you're even just processing through, Maybe you haven't been evaluating your own life and just accepting this is the status quo of how I'm gonna be and who I'm gonna be. Or maybe you're the other side and you've just always felt condemned. I wanna give you space at the altar, space in this final song to process through that it's Jesus. It's Jesus' grace. It's Jesus' love. It's Jesus' transformation in our lives. Let's come together. You can receive prayer on the sides here. You can come forward and we can pray through receiving Jesus this morning.